everybody, to another episode of the Overdue Rentals Podcast, the show where we're going to talk about films. We're going to talk about, we do talk about films that people maybe just don't talk enough about anymore. They were big award winners. They were smaller indies. But for whatever reason, who knows why, that's what we're going to talk about maybe. They don't get the, sh- the, the light shown on them that they once did. I'm Matthew Shuckman, fumbling all over himself. And I'm Sid Mublin's Mike Reyes, just taking in the scenery. Uh, like I said, the, I, uh, this is why I like that we don't have this pre-recorded because I like that it's sort of, it's fresh. It's different every time. We're allowed to throw in custom spiel. So it's not just cut and paste because I think that's what the people want from us. And after 50 some odd episodes, everybody's used to it. And by the way, uh, we'll plug it again later, but if you want to listen to any of those other episodes, please find us wherever you ethically source your podcasts. Uh, there's, a, I think there's a couple episodes that we reference in, in this particular episode, because we are talking to Mr. Pink, who is a director of the current film, The Wheel. And he also uh, directed a couple of films called Hot Tub Time Machine and Hot Tub Time Machine 2, and uh, is a good friend of uh, John Cusack. At least I think it's it's safe to assume that they're good friends look let's let's look steve yes he's got the wheel coming out we're talking about hot tub time machine but look the man also co-wrote the screenplay for high fidelity he (sighs) also uh directed uh, another film that i know we have on our list that maybe we'll have him back on which is accepted yes uh Uh, yeah i mean a lot of this is not the only things he's done you know but i just things that i want to talk to him about later on too because um you know, I don't I think we talk to him again. Yeah, of course. Well, I, I want to, we get, we got to look, we got to have him on for a longer period of time too, because as you'll hear, this is a very engaging discussion. Um, we should mention before we get into it though, uh, in case you haven't seen it yet, or, or it's not available to you yet, the wheel is coming out very soon for you to all watch. And it basically very simply not to ruin anything just deals with a young couple who are trying to work some issues through some issues in their marriage and a, other couple that they kind of run across uh not run across they rent a cabin from in 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 the interim and how their relationship impacts the entire story yes a lot of of romance and and turmoil and it is the complete antithesis of the hot tub time machine duology yes is uh shenanigans and chicanery involving some very interesting man children and the power of radioactive uh, sports drinks and hot tubs. Hot Tub Time Machine, one of the very few films that really is exactly what the title tells you. It's about a hot tub time machine. And they're just, uh, well, we'll get into it later, but suffice it to say, big fan. And I was late to the game on all of it, but we'll, we'll get to that later because right now it is time to welcome Mr. Steve Pink to the Overdue Rentals Rental Counter. It's fantastic to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate your interest. Really do. Um, I, I've been listening to your podcasts. I, I was not aware of them before, but now I am. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. I liked the premise of the podcast. Like, the guests are great. You guys are great interviewers. Um, but I like, you know, the, the I like the concept a lot. Um, it's just a really, really good, I think it's just a really good way into talking about movies, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I, later when we talk about, yeah. you know, post-wheel, I have some I have some criteria questions for you. Oh, good. Oh, perfect. Ooh. All right, good. That's the first time a guest has ever done that. And now I'm, I'm even, I'm excited. And we're recording this right now. Like, 
Yeah. Now I'm gonna throw some stuff at you. I'm gonna throw some stuff at you, and we'll see. I just want to get your. You know, you're the curators of your of your own podcast, and I want to dig. In, I want to dig into that a little bit. Well, but more importantly, let's let's do though talk about the wheel because I need. I'm I'm interested to know where you kind of joined on. What was the importance of you doing this in the director's chair? Um, because for again, not saying that your entire history is only comedy. But this is the strictest stray drama I think I've seen from you. And I'm wondering where your interest is in maybe trying to make sure you had that explored because people, you know, may want to pigeonhole you, let's say. Yeah, I mean, that's the answer, right? Like the opportunity presented itself at a time when, um, you know, it was during COVID, you know, the world had stopped. And, you know, this, these young producers, uh, Josh Jason and Mali Galula had put together had sent me, had given me the script. I worked with Josh in, in our commercial company together. And so I knew him um, and he was, he's a young filmmaker. And the, you know, the more we worked together on commercial shoots, the more we just liked each other. And then he sent me the script. And of course that was the joke, right? I said, well, have you seen, have you looked up my IMDb? Like, are you aware of my past work? Um, but so him actually believing in me uh, as a filmmaker, uh, I thought was brave of him, frankly um to give me the opportunity to to try my hand at a drama uh and a you know really kind of intimate drama such as this too so such as the wheel so um yeah so i i was i love the script first and foremost it was a great script um and you know um the opportunity to take a very very small crew i think there's only mm. 20 of us maybe 25 with the actors and we went up to the Angeles Forest, you know, um, with just a couple of cameras. Maybe I think we only had one light. Actually, everything was all just kind of either practical or available light. Um, and this young, uh, so it was basically so it was opportunity. A couple of different opportunities. One is to work on a drama and to see if I could, you know, make a happy, decent one, and then work with the actors who are brilliant young actors, and then you know to work with all these great young filmmakers. They were all of the people I was working with were either just out of film school or still in graduate school mm. so for all of us to just be a very small family that goes up in the forest and tried to kind of make this tell this little story i mean it was just impossible to resist that you know and and as a you know because it was such a handmade film you know like the jeep is my stepfather's jeep you know that green jeep that's my stepfather's uh jeep all of the furnishings in their bed and breakfast is from my are from my house mm. A lot of uh, Amber's wardrobe is from my wife's closet. Um, actually, that's not true. Not her wardrobe, but the sweaters. Okay. The sweaters. Uh, my um, stepdaughter Fiona came on and, and actually learned how to be uh, uh, join the camera department and is now working as a second AC. Wow. Um, so, so Bella Gonzalez and Andrew the boy, the a camera operator, took her under under their wing because we couldn't pay another person to be an AC. So hmm. we're like, we'll train Fiona from scratch. And so by the time we finished that movie, you know, Fiona was, you know, kind of became a really, um, you know, like competent um, AC in the camera department. So it was just a, you know, it was a family. Um, it was, you know, it's just this little, this little thing that, um, you know, that I, that I was thrilled to be able to do with in my, not only my own family, but the family that, that kind of formed as a result of it. That's honestly where some of the, I think that's where some of the best stories that we've gotten on this show, but also that have come out of filmmaking come from is indie films where everybody really pulls together and makes the most out of the resources they have and then everybody learns something. Yeah, I mean, I learned a ton 
um, you know, like shooting, um, you know, very, you know, having extremely limited resources, having to figure out how to do things with economy, um, how to tell a story like that, um, trying to shoot, having like a theory and seeing if we could pull it off. Like um, the, you know, cinematographer and I were always, our idea was like, how do we, how are we always telling the story from an emotional perspective? You know, how are we capturing um, the interior lives of these characters? What, you know, in terms, you know, and, and trying to, you know, somehow capture what they're not saying as much as what they're saying it was all like a huge challenge and, and, you know, didn't know if it would work. You know, we just kept every day, you know, we would emerge from our cabins at the summer camp that we had rented that wasn't, you know, going on because of COVID. And we would walk over to the set and just try and, you know, tell the story. Um, and, you know, it was, and the actors were extraordinary in that way because it was, you know, it was almost like an experiment. It was just us in the middle of the woods. And then I would call action and they would, <laughs> they would jump into their characters and we would try and create this thing. It was surreal at times, you know, um, and really, really cool. Well, jumping deeper into the story itself, I, I, I kind of question, not question, I kind of have questions about, based on from where it went from the script to when you kind of started to film it, because it, it, it's a it's a story where you're going to have to start judging people in a certain way of, who are judging each other. And, you know, I came, I'm one of these people that the minute I start hearing everybody call each other babe, I start judging them in a certain way. And I'm, <laughs> and I start to wonder, it's like, well, is it's just, is that how it was written? Or you say, guys, let's, let's like, let's like pump it up a little bit more because we need to people to kind of see, you know, maybe this is too much of a childish relationship or maybe no, that's what you're meant to think. And then later on you it grows and turns into something else. So finding that balance based on from where it went from the script to how you presented it. Um, yeah, I mean, they were kind of exploring who they were to each other in real time. You know, we didn't have a lot of rehearsal for all the obvious reasons, you know, mm -hmm. COVID and everything. And so, um, a lot, you know, most of it was scripted, um, but, you know, they would say things to each other that felt authentic or genuine, or they didn't, you know, like, you know, having, you know, Amber Mythunder, especially, you know, her bravery and courage to be someone, um, you know, since you've seen the movie, you know, who is very challenging to deal with, you know, she uh, is someone who you need to bring an enormous amount of empathy to, because if you don't, you'll not like her at all, and you won't understand sure. why anyone's putting up with her at all, you know, and so to be someone who is, you know, unlikable, um, and is going through the amount of kind of distress that she's going through is incredibly hard to pull off. Um, and um, it was amazing. And we talked a lot about it. You know, we talked a lot about like, when someone is that hostile to everyone around them, um, how do we still preserve um, her humanity so that you have a deepening empathy for her despite how difficult she's being? Um, and that was just a challenge in and of itself that, you know, Amber's, her range is extraordinary. Um, and, and Taylor was a great counterbalance to that because, you know, he, you know, at least at first blush looks like the guy who um, isn't flawed, right? Like, oh, he's the one who's, you know, all, you know, he's, he had, he's all forgiving and he's so open and he's, you know, so supportive, you know, unconditionally, he has this unconditional love for her. But, you know, I, in my mind, uh, that itself was a flaw, right? Like he, yeah. he was expecting to solve their problems through this like strategy of unconditional love. And so, you know, that's, that's not, that's not a thing, you know, it's not, that's not real. And it's not, 
and it's and it's not going to be the thing that helps solve their it's not going to be the way in which they solve their problems and so um, it's a really, really inter interesting dynamic because you, you, you know, you have to learn to have, you know, your your perspectives on these people evolve at least hopefully, um, and that's true of all the characters, you know. Yeah. yeah. So you know, so we yeah, so we were exploring a lot of it during the course of the movie because we were like, well, you know, um, as you said, like, is this real? Are these people real? How do we create an? How do we? How do we create you know authentic portrayals of these people while we're doing it, um, given how extreme they are in some ways? Yeah, that is probably what I liked most about this movie is the fact that it reminded me of flawed relationships that I had had because I I there there were like early young relationships where I remember being like Taylor's character where it's just oh, I can really, this can really work. I'm really, you know, let's just do this. Let's do that. Like I, towards the end of one of my failed relationships, I remember even buying one of those relationship books and it never, it never worked. Yeah. But what was, what I really glummed onto was the fact that Amber portrays that character where she's all over the map. The woman is a mess, but it's a believable person. You understand where she's coming from, why this is happening and ultimately why things end up the way they do like it's never pushed to the point of histrionics where it's just you're either rooting for her totally or not it's it's just that complicated gray that you can identify with yeah I was always and we talked about it as a cast and as a crew like how I, I want to have empathy for these people if, if, if we walk away from think, if we walk away thinking like wow you know like I actually have a you know of a deep empathy for all the characters then I think we've succeeded because you know it's it yeah I've been caught I'm sure we all have um been caught in behaviors we can't get out of right like you sure. you you know like and when you look at Carly and Ben the other the older couple who's just getting married they're and also in a certain kind of denial it just seems a lot more you know enjoyable right because they don't seem to have on the surface this like super intense conflict going on where there's all this open hostility they seem kind of like oh you know we you know we're gonna eat we can have dinner and you know and you know we'll work it out and you know we'll you know on at least on the surface you know have this kind of deeply loving relationship um but they're not any safer in terms of the honesty of their um relationship um um, they're not any safer than than Albie and Walker, who are expressing it in a, in a, in a you know in a lot more heightened way. Yeah. Um, that was fascinating to me to watch, actually, as a director in real time and see how everyone how it all played out. You know, I have to ask something I normally don't do because I have to ask a specific detail because I'm now starting to think I'm going crazy. Mm -hmm. So I was watching the film. And, you know, Walker's in the boat uh, on the lake on, on his own and the phone, you know, he falls asleep and the phone goes off and he sees it. And I remember watching it, seeing the text messages come up, but I, I couldn't see. And I said, oh, I'll go back later and see what they said. When I went back later, I don't know if the scene was missing or something or I'm going crazy. So I never got to see what it said. Now, you don't have to go into details or anything like that for people who haven't seen it. But what exactly was written there? Because I somehow have missed it completely. Uh, wow, I have to go back and look at the film, make sure that the insert is... Yes. I know it, it was okay. Is they're like, are you getting my texts? As your best friend, I think you should break this off. Okay. That's what I, the, the, the end part I missed somehow. And I'm like, I'm, we're going to have Steve on. Let me just ask him. 
<laughs> well, it's tricky too because you think that she's cheating on him, right? So that's what you expect to be on those texts. But really, it's a friend just saying, "End it, end it, end it." And and the, of course, the reason that's significant is because from Taylor's point of view, when he re when he sees that, he realizes that, um, or he he believes in that moment that Amber's been in, or that the character of Albie's been um, operating in bad faith the whole time. Now, now she has said she doesn't want to do it. So I don't know how in bad faith that actually is, but to really have decided that she's leaving him and that there is no hope in that moment, I think was the coffin nail for for Taylor. Yeah. That's what turns you know the story once he, once that once that text is exposed. Yeah. Well, it is now time since we're on overdue rentals to jump into the film that we approached you to discuss and you gladly accepted. So you're under oath here. Nothing, no pressure or anything. <laughs> but uh, Hot Tub Time Machine, uh, both of those films, I was, I was a little late to the game on them, but once I got into it, I really appreciated what was being done with the sort of the humor in both calling back to, you know, uh, sort of the frat films of the 80s, but then also jumping ahead to the future in the second one. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you first jumped on board and what kept you on for the sequel. Well, uh, Johnny Cusack brought me on to the first one. Uh, Josh Heald wrote the first one. And then the second one had just had a life, you know, we had all done it. So then it was had a life of its own. Um, you know, um, I like, it's funny because I think the second one is, is, is an order of magnitude funnier in some ways, but also less you know, you know, good as a movie, because I don't think um, less good is, you know, look it up. It's an industry term. Um, <laughs> yeah, variety. Yeah, yeah, everybody knows less good um, because um, the story is not as compelling. Like in the first one you have, you know, I think we should, probably should have done a better job of having rooting interest in the character stories. I mean, I think the character stories are good in the second one, but the first one was a you know, it's a, it's a do-over movie, right? It's a, it's a midlife crisis movie. And so there's so much relatable, uh, emotional material. So then when you have all that actual kind of relatable um, storytelling going on with character, the laughs come easier. Laughs come easier, you're more engaged in the story. And so the second one I thought was just full goose bonkers and I loved making it, but I think that's probably its flaw. Um, and so I don't know, is that an overdue rental in your mind that meet the criteria? Well, you know, the, thing, the thing about it is, it's like, it, it definitely has a lot more clout still than some of our other films we always plan on talking about or want to talk about. But where it fits into the overdue rental in my mind and why we think of it that way is because I think Hot Tub Time Machine and maybe the Hangover movies were like the end of an era mm -hmm. in where a comedy could rule the box office and could be one, two, three, uh, leading in the weekends and they, they don't seem to exist anymore because that was the the kind of break where the MCU kind of came in and now where it doesn't seem like if it's not that even though it does well it's not on the it's not the same way on everybody's lips as it was at one point or another and the people still remember people still love it but it's come to the point where you have to remind them a little bit first before it comes out of the of their mouths yeah, it's wild. You know, I look at Judd Apatow and all the movies he made, which I love, like 40-Year-Old Virgin, yep. which I love, 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 or Bridesmaids that Paul Feig made. And you think, yeah, are, are, is it the end of the year? And I mean, maybe maybe they just take a different form because there are great comedies that have come out since then. Sure. Um, and so, but it, just in terms of the era of studio, you know, supporting, wow. Wait, are it's you- Motion censored lights in this office. <laughs> you, or did you just go back in time and then come- Yeah, you know, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll hold on, I got to shave real quick and then come back. Okay. Gosh, did you do what I told you? 
um, so yeah, maybe it was in that way. Um, uh, so I have some, so here's my lightning round for you guys, because I sure. want to know if these are in your mind overdue rentals, because I just love your podcast. So I was like, well, I want to ask you um, these questions. So the, the following, so Repo Man, is it an overdue rental? Have you discussed the podcast yet? Have it's actually, we've actually talked about it like three days ago, I think, because we were talking about Repo Men, and I said, oh, then we also, we of course, don't forget, and it's on our list to do, we have to do Repo Man, because that's definitely 100% on there, yeah. Definitely. And, um, repo, and then in the uh, deep, sorry? And also Repo the Genetic Opera. Yeah, <laughs> right. Deep, uh, and then uh, other, I guess it's in the deep indie world, but like, you know, Jane Campion's early movies, I, I thought of, like, um, like Sweetie or um, Angel at My Table, which were before um, before piano, so the piano. Um, well, so yeah, I mean, this, this would count too because the piano, the piano is another firm yes. where that was a huge thing back in the day, and all anyone could talk about was Anna Paquin winning Harvey Keitel's Nudity, and just it was like one of those award movie darlings, and now it's not spoken of as much. You probably have a, yeah, you probably have a cultural appropriation problem, yeah. right? As much as it's amazing, True. you might have a cultural appropriation problem with the Harvey Keitel character. Well, there's, um, there's a lot of stuff that, yeah, those things are going to come up with. It's not like we're going to shy away from talking about them because we want to, but we want to talk about the film. Like, you know, over rentals, it is. It's supposed to be something, I think the piano is the perfect, is a great example because, yeah, award winner all over the place. Um, you Brian know, like- we're, Another one we mentioned in that vein. What was that? Crying Game is another one we mentioned. Yeah, cry, Crying right. Game. But then there are films that are little, you know, not as well known, or they may have been well known before, you know, a certain point, you know, and and to talk about that idea of not necessarily cult, cult, uh, cultural appropriation, because there is in it that I haven't discussed, because a big film I want to talk about is Putney Swope, which, you know, not because of any specific reason other than Arnold Johnson couldn't remember his lines, Robert Downey Sr. is the one doing all of Putney Swope's lines. And you kind of have to talk about that when you talk about the movie. Right, of course. I think it all becomes the part of the, you, yeah, it all becomes the context in which you discuss any and all movies, I guess. And that's, that's, that's you know, kind of the beauty of it. I think as everyone's willing to talk about it in that way, you can still enjoy it and then realize how either yeah. you know, deeply flawed it is because of those things or just, you know, saying, well, okay, it's framed as part of an era or whatever. Another one that comes to mind, which I think is massively underrated, I know I'm taking over your podcast in this regard, Go is, for it. Um, is uh, Bamboozled, uh, which I saw in the theater. Yes. And Damon Wayans, I think, was robbed of a nomination, frankly. Um, it was, you know, Spike Lee's take on Network. And yep, exactly. Well, brilliant. Network's also, because Network's my second favorite film of all time. So it's going to be on the podcast at one point or other too. Yes, I guess if you even get spikes to talk about network and bamboozled, um, because they are, you know, they one is a reflection. Obviously, he made one in reflection of the other, um, and it's just so great. Yeah, um, I just love that movie. Um, so yeah, oh, and La Femme Nikita was my other one. Where do you guys stand on that as an overdue rental? Because it's such a good assassin genre movie, uh, and was I was so inspired by it. Um, for gross point blank and all that, and I did, and I and it really holds up. It's such a like she's such a awesome punk rock assassin character and it's so well shot and i don't it's know. a fight because we were just talking about it the other day too because we were talking about the idea of looking nikita slash point of no return right right <laughs> when you're like right it's funny um that's really Hank has been listening in on our phones yeah <laughs> yes yeah, so, yeah it's yeah we're all being listened to so i okay well we're on the yeah we're on the same wavelength uh in that regard i think your podcast is great um to be Thank able you. to 
to talk about all these things um, and then, you know, deal with whether or not they're like, so how do you guys do? I know I'm now interviewing you, but how, what's the difference between like an underrated movie or, or like in, in, in overdue rentals, it can either be underrated or it could have been celebrated, but forgotten. So there's like, correct. I get it. Yeah. Like even uh, to a certain extent, looking at your filmography, I think gross point blank would be another one that people should talk more about, but also accepted. Because well, I remember going to see that with my brothers when it first came out. And that was something that just really, it hit for us, but I don't know why it didn't expand further. Well, I, I actually, I, I apologize. I didn't want to cut into your answer, Steve, because I, I want to jump on top of that and also add in, because I don't know if you're aware of this or not, mm -hmm. but Gross Point Blank has also become a big, big film in the now burgeoning blow-up market of YouTube reaction uh, um, uh, creators who like watch old films that people said, oh, you should watch this. Gross Point Blank's become a big one for them to watch now. I did not know that. That's cool. Wow. Yeah. So they do, it's like video games or whatever. They, you know, or like, like. Yeah, that's everything. They just like, it's like people, oh, oh, uh, there's literally people, I don't know how, not only, I, I can understand not seeing it, but there are people who are now reacting to the Sixth Sense, not knowing the twist. That's amazing. There are people, and so they, they watch The Green Mile's a big one that everybody watches, a lot of Edgar Wright films, but. There, there's basically when one of the one of these creators does a film, the rest of them start doing it. So one person got on a gross point blank, and now they're all doing gross point blank. That's amazing. I'm gonna watch one. That's really cool. I love that. Thank you for telling me about that. That's cool. Um, yeah, and like other underappreciated movie podcasts have latched onto it too. Uh, Junk Food Cinema did an episode recently. Really? Yeah. It was that was a really, really obviously it was my first film. Uh, Working with DV, D. Vincentis, my longtime partner, and Johnny Huzak, we had such a good time. It was just the three of us, basically, who had this, you know, who had who made that thing happen. And then, you know, obviously, we Donna Roth and Susan Arnold, the producers, came on, and George Armitage came on to direct. And it was an extraordinary, you know, experience for me being, you know, the age I was uh, to be able to make that movie. Um, and the fact that people embraced us and allowed us to make that movie is also, you know, is kind of extraordinary. Well, it brings it also interesting tie for me to Hot Tub Time Machine as well, because what I think both films have done, and Grace went blank more just as far as the reminiscing, is it does the 80s right. Because I think so many people, no matter what, it doesn't have to be the 80s, it could have been the 70s, 60s, it's just like they get an idea of image where it was supposed to be and they've all done that. But instead you did it how it actually was. And again, something like Gross Point Blank where we're getting the original Faith the More We Care A Lot played, which is not a, not a song you get played. In, in these types of films in a hot tub time machine where it's, yeah, it's, there is an idea of almost like a spoof if you want, but it's not, it's actually true to the time period compared to a lot of other films. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I, I was struggled with it shooting that, right? Because there were some times where I was like, oh, this is a very broad, iconic 80s joke, right? Like the Wayfarers or whatever. And then I realized very, you know, as I was shooting that I could only lean on those for so long, you know? And so it was, what you're saying actually you know, I wish I had said like, oh yeah, I knew that all along. But really what was happening is while we were making the film, I said, okay, I'm gonna actually not pay so much attention to them now. And I, now I'm just gonna try and create the environment. And if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. Because certainly there were some of the big jokes, but I was like, the more I do those, the less they're gonna pay dividends, you know? Like, you, you know, and like, because then they're, they're laughs of acknowledgement, right? And so how many laughs of acknowledgement am I really gonna get? So. Obviously, I was concerned in just creating laughs uh, through the dynamic of the characters and what they're actually going through, because that's you know like the, the you know absurd circumstances with characters in them. That's where you get the comedy from. Um, 
But so then I was like, okay, then I'm just going to try and create in, in the atmosphere or environment that existed at that time. And as the film, as we were shooting, the more I did that, the better it was. So that the, so in, in fact, then I was more comfortable with putting more references in. Mm. So it was like, it was like a million Easter eggs I don't pay attention to, as opposed to like the one Easter egg that I like put the camera on. Um, and so that actually was kind of a bit of an evolving um, idea um, as we were shooting the movie. Because initially, of course, you're thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to make fun of the 80s, you know, and look at all the shots and fun will happen. I was like, uh oh, that's only going to have limited appeal. So why don't we just create the environment and create the world, I should say, and then live in it. And then that and that way it'll be more authentic and you get all the jokes if you notice them. And if you don't, that's also fine, too. Something that really worked for me in a retroactive sense was your casting of Sebastian Stan as like Blaine, the all-American anti-red sort of Reaganite. And That's then the great. guy goes and plays Winter Soldier a yeah. couple of years later. And that just worked for me on so many levels. He's the greatest, you know, um, this, the, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever told this story, certainly not on a podcast, I've told it to friends, but you know, he so we're auditioning for that character right and um Susie Ferris the the casting director hands me a tape so he put himself on tape uh in a you know for an you know he auditions to for the role on tape from his apartment in New York but instead of doing any of the lines he just played the character in the like day in the life of that character so like he's in his kitchen like listening to like music and like cooking you know, and then he was like in his living room, like watching TV and just being so he was basically just decided that he would inhabit the character in his own world in his own apartment. And that was his audition. And it was so brilliant and so funny just to watch him be the guy like as if no one was watching um, that um, and no one was watching. It was just him and his whatever videotape, whatever camera he had. And so I just said to Susie, send it to the studio. Let's cast him. I never talked to him. I didn't ever call him back. Uh, I think I met him probably when he came in for a wardrobe fitting, or maybe I talked to him on the phone after we cast him. I, I don't remember, but mm. but I saw that tape and I was like, this man is genius. And I just said, book him because it was such a brilliant, it was such a brilliant audition. I hope it's out there somewhere. I wonder who has it. Like that would just be one of those things, maybe the, I don't know if Sebastian would like to show that, but um, it was genuinely funny and brilliant. Um, and. Hopefully, maybe maybe someone has it somewhere to to watch. It's really it was really great. So that's how I that's how I cast him in the role, and he was of course super funny. And we had to actually cut scenes down, which was a bummer. Ah. He had twice those scenes. Yeah, he, there are. I wonder. I don't think. I don't think they're on the DVD. Maybe they are. But he had twice the amount of scenes in the that we shot that were ended up in the movie. Okay, so what we need to do is we need to send this episode to Shout Factory and tell them that. You're inter if, if, upon your approval, you're interested in doing the Sebastian Stan cut of Hot Tub Time Machine 1, and then maybe do a, a special edition of 2 as well, and just put it back out there for people to watch. Is that a thing? Shout is really good about licensing through studios. Like, they'll do, like, limited printings there. I kind of call them the Criterion of Cult, because, uh, like, Event Horizons, one that they did where they'll do new special features. They'll try to get as much deleted or hidden stuff as they can get approved. And then they'll put out these nice new fresh editions when studios don't. But what looks like it's happening is uh, studios are then reclaiming those movies afterwards. And it's like, hey, we're doing a 4K edition of that with all the stuff that you had on the other one, it's just, you know, in 4K. 
I wonder if there's enough footage to recut the movie from Sebastian Stan's character's perspective. Oh. So that if the story is about four, you know, insaniacs who come <laughs> to his ski lodge to steal his girlfriend, right? Like he's this oh. guy who has like a girlfriend and he's like, you know, the cool ski patrol guy. And then these like four like aliens essentially uh, like fuck up his world. And then so that, and so the movie's actually the whole entire thing is like, he's the hero of the movie. I don't know. I probably don't have quite enough footage to do that. But I, I bet I have enough <laughs> footage to do the version. I bet I could do, I bet I could do a, you know, like a, a 10 minute version of the film. Version. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's your pitch reel for Hot Tub Time Machine 3, The Revenge of Blaine. <laughs> the Revenge of Blaine. The Wrath of Blaine, I don't know. Wrath of Blaine is genius. That's really Blaine funny. in the USA. Yeah, that's really <laughs> funny. Well, I know we got to let you go soon. So I, I do want to piggyback a little bit on that and ask another question, which is probably not even anywhere near reality compared to what I think of it in my head. But in some ways, do you feel... Because I know he's worked behind the scenes for a long time, but in some ways, do you feel that maybe you're indirectly responsible for the resurgence of Cobra Kai by putting Williams back in there? Because it, it gave it gave people interest again to want to kind of see that, and now all of a sudden it's turned into this phenomenon. Well, um, I you know, so Josh Heald is the writer of Hot Tub Time Machine, right? And yep. the Cobra Kai, and John and Hayden were on the set of Hot Tub Time Machine when we shot the Billy Sapka sequence. So those guys were starting to kind of generate. So I will say that, you know, uh, you know, there's probably a moment where, you know, I, I would say in the, the big story of Cobra Kai, we probably share, I wouldn't say credit, but we, we should, there's a hot tub shares, you know, we, we are part of the story. We are like a, a touchstone moment where the guys met Billy Zadka. Um, and, um, but those guys had such a deep love of, of Cobra Kai or Karate Kid in that whole world and had been working on it for many, many years. And so um, I don't know if the idea was born on that night, uh, <laughs> if it was born prior to that. I think I kind of feel like it was born prior to that. But then it was Josh saying we should go and cast Billy Zapka. Like, I'm not really sure how Billy, I mean, the idea of Billy Zapka might have been Josh's idea, actually, mm. to cast him. And so I, it might have been even prior to that moment. So anyway, yes, it's a stepping stone in the in the in the lore or mythology that you know that that will become the great story of how Cobra Kai happened. You, you know, we share a tiny little moment on that set that night when John Hayden and Josh were all there and Billy was there and, and we shot that scene for sure. Um, yeah, so what little part we share in that, I'm, I was happy to be a part of it. And and Billy's the greatest. Like when we met him on set, I was like. You know, you get to be any character you want. Like I was through, and you know, because he was, of course, worried when I called him that he was going to be asked to be playing these, like an '80s villain. I yeah. said, no. Like back to um, what you were saying before, I was like, let's just, we're just, I'm just going to create. You know, you're just going to kind of weave into the fabric of the story. I'm never going to call attention to the fact that you were, that you were this like '80 great '80s villain. Like if people get it, they get it. If they don't, you know, I'm not going to call attention to it, right? Um, and so when I said that to him, he was, he agreed to do it. That's why he agreed to do it. I think largely, because I was like, I'm, it's not a parody. I'm not going to make fun of you. You're just a guy who's betting, who's sports betting in a bar. That's it. That's the, he, he killed, he killed it. It's, it's one of those things that no matter how much you love the film as a whole, when you see that whole scene, you're just like, this is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So a gay panic joke. It's, it is. It, I wonder if we're like top 10 gay panic joke of all time. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's many police academy movies. True. 
<laughs> well, um, Steve. so I would say, yeah, so my plug for my movie at the end, because yeah. I know we're wrapping yes. up, it, I'm going to propose that the wheel is um, an overdue rental, like an instant overdue rental. Oh. Right. Because like it's so hard, you know, we're a tiny movie, right? You guys are helping us promote it. Um, there's so much good stuff out in the, you know, in the, in the kind of, in the entertainment world, there's so, or there's so many things being released. There's so much to watch that, you know, to try and find, you know, like people I think are going to try be, hopefully be finding this movie for years to come. So it's kind of like the instant overdue rental because <laughs> it's a movie you have to, you probably have to search for a little bit. Um, and, um, hopefully you'll be surprised and delighted when you see it. So that's my pitch for it being the instant overdue rental. Which only means that we need to get you back in the future to discuss it again. In a yes. <laughs> and on that note, uh, Steve, thank you very much for joining us today. Yes. I hope against hope that maybe hot tub time machine three happens. Cause I still want to know where Chernobyl came from. Yeah. Well, we've talked about that, right? We'd hope maybe it's like hot tub time machine four. There was no three. Like, I like that. Steve Pink, everybody. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, just that, that, that basically sums up the conversation there because this, I mean, anybody can do a podcast right now. Anybody can do a podcast about movies right now. But what was really cool about how Steve reacted to our show was he dug our concept, but also the execution. Yeah, it's funny. You know what? I got to stop. I say it's funny so many times, but it's true. It's funny because there are so many people who we talk to who get the concept, are interested in the concept, talk about the concept. And as much as I don't want to, you know, we're we're, we're time constrained. No matter who we're going to talk to, even if we have them for a whole hour, let's say, you're always time constrained because you're always fearful that, oh, I forgot to ask this. I forgot to ask that. Um, But when Steve said he had questions for us, I'm like, screw it. If, if we never get to ask him any questions about Hot Tub Time Machine, I'm looking forward to what he has to ask us because it obviously means we have somebody who gets it, who cares, and uh, thinks like we do. I really, I, I, I mean, I didn't want to step on any toes, but I did want to kind of ask him about the whole John Cusack Hot Tub Time Machine 2 thing because apparently he was not asked back. However, mm-hmm. he has that uncredited cameo that you can only watch in the unrated version. And I'm wondering why did they, why was it cut? If he wasn't asked back for the film, how would, how did he get that cameo? Like I didn't want to root around on the insides of these, but at the same time, the flow of the conversation went too well. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? I will glad, I mean, we'll talk about, we get to talk about the movies on our own time. Talking to the guests, it's like whatever makes them comfortable. It's like you, you riff on it. Whatever comes out, comes out. And again, Steve Pink is like one of those people that just beat it in on us, knew the show, and then helped like sort of explain the show to people. <laughs> like if somebody was to listen to this as a first episode, his qu- line of questioning is like a really good primer as to why we do this show and yeah. what our purpose is. Well, you know, and and not to not to change the subject a little bit, but what I think is was also this is a great kind of point to make for a lot of people because i know you've talked about in the past um you know about when and how you read press notes for a film and you know i'm the type of person that doesn't want to read anything as people know i don't want to know anything about a movie before i see it but after a lot of times i'll I'll read the press notes but this is one of those instances where i'm so glad i did not read the press notes they sent because 
learning about the production from Steve in the conversation, learning about what went into like the, 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 the small crew and, and just kind of like everybody finding jobs to, to his, his family even, just like taking on these new jobs in this very intimate setting was so, I was so glad to hear about that kind of thing fresh from him compared to reading it and then going like, hey, I heard this is what happened. Just tell us about it again. Well, yeah. And I mean, in a normal interview setting, I do love to read the press notes after seeing the movie set where it's like, okay, I can inform my questions because you're going to have like four to five minutes normally. Yeah. Like, okay. Everything needs to be targeted. I want to cut past everything that they've already given us and get something different. But in an extended setting like this, I don't mind if we're going to, I don't mind retreading over that if it leads to something new. And that's why I bring that stuff up in the first place. But still, listening to Steve talk about the production of the wheel and just going into, again, that that true indie spirit of you, you're basically family from the first day of shooting to the end. And, you know, you don't, you never know what you're, what sort of lessons you're going to learn on this movie. Yeah. I like hearing that firsthand as well. I, I, I guess that's just my way of agreeing with you through recycling some of the same words, but yeah, you know, well, we're, we're co-hosts for a reason. To also go back to your point about not getting certain questions in, I guess, the one thing I also didn't necessarily say, which, and it shouldn't be my place to assume these things because, you know, Steve himself said, he's like, you know, he's going to call the wheel right now and overdue rental. Um, you know, for the amount of people he thinks are going to have the chance to see it or how, how wide it's going to get out there to people. But he's got, you know, you got to say that when you have, you know, Amber Midthunder coming out with Prey soon as well, there's going to be a lot. You know, she's been, she doesn't, she's had a lot of work that I didn't ever know about in the past. But after she's that comes really- out, there's going to be people going like, what is she in? What is, and so it's going to open up a new door. And I wonder how many people are going to discover the wheel because of its closeness to the release of Prey. Exactly. And plus Netflix will probably get some play off of that because she was in a Liam Neeson film. I think last year, The Ice Road came out and I got to talk to her for that. And she's a fantastic interview. I would love to get her on the show. I really liked her in The Wheel because as I had mentioned in our conversation, this movie kind of gave me flashbacks to some of my worst relationships in the past. And the way that she anchors this character where it's like the woman's all over the map but you can believe it because like gender aside, like you could, anyone has probably dated a handful of people like that. Well, this and they know those behaviors and she does portrays them in such a way that it's not just movie version. It's like, this is a very believable movie. Well, this is, this is where I also had something I wanted to bring up in the interview. And I held my tongue because I knew it would have taken us too far off in an, on another trail because you know, there's a lot I've been watching, just as we spoke about to Steve during the interview, the whole idea of YouTube reactors and stuff like that. There's a lot of people rediscovering things right now. And there's a lot of people who are fight for the first time discovering stuff even newer, like Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And in through that, you see a lot of the talk now about people who are like, this is problematic. Even if they like the movie, the behaviors are problematic. And the thing about Scott Pilgrim, mm. which they which which I think is missed by a lot of these people, is that's kind of the point i mean it's not problematic in the way they're talking about it but the idea is, is that scott Pilgrim is a movie literally about the idea of okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna cut myself off and change the subject it's still about scott pilgrim but i'm gonna change about what i'm gonna talk about because there are the people who were who were fans of the the, the comic or the manga whatever it was beforehand yeah 
you know, who knew the film came out before it was, or was filmed before it was finished. And, you know, in the comic, he ends up with knives and they was like, oh, we should have ended up with knives, even though, again, she's still younger than him and all this other stuff. And, but that's the point. That's why the ending of the, the movie- comic, he, is, In the comic, he ends up with Ramona. And they- No, should... the comic, he ends up with knives, I understand. No, ooh, you... okay, story. Yeah, no, I'm gonna look this up because I, I, I was told that- they were, the... What happened was they were, they crafted the movie. They wrote the movie and the whole thing was they filmed and wrote the ending where Scott ends up with knives. It was before the comic was even finished. Yeah. And yeah. then I think they talked with uh, Brian O'Malley and they basically retooled the ending because they knew that he was going to end up with Ramona. And I think there was also tests, uh, test screenings came into play with, like I wrote about it for the anniversary okay. on Cinema Blend, but basically they did originally have an ending with him ending up with knives but then changed it to Ramona because they, I think it was partially because of the comic, but also because they kind of realized, oh, maybe he well, should end up with Ramona. Well, that's that, my, my, my fault then, but either way, the whole point is yeah. that there are, there are throngs of people that thinks he should have stayed with Knives. And that's the whole point of why he shouldn't have, because forget, <laughs> about, forget about any of the problematic age stuff. That's the movie the explaining to you about how past relationships and how your naivete about them teach you how to grow and build better relationships further on down the road. That's the whole point. And it takes the video game aspect of it with the idea of an extra life, yeah. or if you can, if you knew the answer and you can go back and do it again. And that's what your early relationships are meant to be. Your early relationships are meant to fail. I know some people go through with their first girlfriend or the first boyfriend in their entire life. And that's it. Great for them. Oh yeah, everybody loves the notion of high school sweethearts. Yeah, but it's not meant to work out. You're supposed to grow and learn and be broken by those things. And I forgot what my point about tying it to the wheel was. Your point is we should do a Scott Pilgrim episode. I get that. But uh, but the, that, but again, the you know the wheel being that's that the whole point is like you know because suppose you get to a point where you have like the older couple that you would think is the one who understands it, but they don't because that guy never grew up. He's stunted, and yeah. and. And the younger people learn from it in a different way that they didn't expect. <laughs> and honestly, this is one of the messiest, but also one of the most honest relationships I think I've, I've seen on film. And what was really interesting was I thought this was going to be a little more of a thriller. I thought Ooh, that it was okay. going to be something where at least one of the pairs ended up hooking up at some point and there was like fallout and consequences. Uh, yeah. But that's a movie we've already seen. That's a movie we've seen plenty of other times. And I think maybe it was more interesting for them to do what they did in this, where it's like the, the, the real damage was psychological versus actually getting into trouble. It's like the, the damage was the fact that you have this relationship that, and this marriage that maybe was formed on a very shaky ground mm. because of the fact that, you know, he really wanted to, to, to care for her and you know they they they're not perfect. Well, the way the film and we won't talk about the way the film. Yeah, well that that's the thing we we can't. But I guess maybe if it is a true overdue rental, and we have Steve back to talk about it. Steve back again in the future to talk about the wheel again. Maybe yeah. we do talk because then there is the one question of how you felt about what first happens at the end, and then what ultimately happens at the end. Oh yes, which, the way which version which version you thought was the maybe a better idea kind of thing and we'll leave it at that very and then obliquely maybe... i will say that i was prepared for it to end the way you thought but then the way but were you that... happy about it were you happy were you were you, were you applauding and saying yes good job or right move 
I don't know because I don't know. I mean, that that's it's another one of those things where you really have to to give it time to breathe and think about it. But I did like how the ending twisted and the way that it twisted and the gesture that was used to twist it. Gotcha. Yeah. Sort of that callback was I thought it was nice. But I think what's really interesting is uh, spoiler alert for our next episode. I guess we have two movies in a row that have some very interesting thoughts and events about that that play out in terms of adult relationships and they're very atypical from what you would expect from a standard romantic film i don't know if it's spoiler because it may come out before this episode oh well it might i mean <laughs> then i then i guess it's just spoilers of future past then but with that I think we should also let, let we should do a little bit of extra talk about Hot Tub Time Machine because you know we oh, did mention shit, it yes, we should. while talking to Steve, like how why we feel it maybe fits in the overdue rentals feeling, and and we do, and I did I did mention it and we talked about the idea you know it does eighties right nostalgia right and the but, first one made made quite a bit of money oh no it made it was number three at the box office I think at its highest peak yeah but, because Hot Tub Time Machine one came out two thousand ten and then yes. Hot Tub Time Machine two was twenty fifteen and that gap made all of the difference especially I, when you go back to hot tub time machine which was probably still coasting off of the waves that hangover made in terms of like sure rated comedies with like shenanigans and humor and all that stuff but but of course this is better than the hangover because it's not as well, uh, uh it's not as mean-spirited i guess and it well the, the thing about because I'm, I'm just focusing on kind of hot tub time machine the first movie because that was that was a movie that again, just like we discussed in the intro, is you know it, it, it is what it is. It, it is what it tells you it is. It's a movie about a, it's a time oh, yeah. machine that's a hot tub, and yes, there's the the story behind it. But it's it's one of those things that is funny on just a funny comedic level, not having to think about it. But at the same time, whether it's the, the way the story's put together or how they weren't too, just as Steve said, they weren't too much as about. Just trying to punch up jokes about the 80s. It's it's like going, it's like going back and watching some horror film that when it came out was like all the critics said, this is disgusting, and people couldn't watch it because they would get sick. And then you watch it now and it's tame. And it's actually almost something you can like watch and go to sleep with and be like, this is comforting to me. Hot yeah. Time Machine has a feeling of just like it's just so well put together that it's just such a comforting movie. Oh yeah, and I, I totally agree with what Steve said about the difference between the two films. The story may not have been as strong with part two, but it was still like, the jokes were great. And the stuff that they did in that film was still a lot of fun. Like I, I one definitely wins in terms of stronger story to the point where, you know, you have that whole sort of darker subplot involving Lou's suicide attempt. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't, for people who can't see us, I mean, you know, I as Mike was saying that I started laughing, and it's not because of the whole Lou suicide thing. It's just that I there are things even while we watching the movie that I've forgotten about that are just like the whole Craig Robinson about like cheating on his his wife thing is like because thinking about him in the hot tub, kind of crying almost while he's like while he's like I gotta do it, I can't. It's like it's it's so brilliant on so many levels that I just I I'm just so overjoyed by it. And I love the cast that they put together for these movies. Uh, again, I'm I'm sad that John Cusack didn't get to play a bigger part in two, but he does kind of, like his story does kind of get wrapped up pretty nicely in the first one. So, you know, Adam Scott as his 
future son, you know, is it, Adam Scott's just a lot of fun to begin with, but it, it, seeing him work with that group is great. But yeah, like Rob Corddry, Clark Duke, Craig Robinson, like those guys are all heavy hitters and Clark Duke especially has some fun in this. Well, yeah, I mean, this was, this was right at the moment. I can't remember which movie it was. I don't know if it was super bad. I think it was super bad. Like if you go and you watch the, um, the commentary for, I'm pretty sure it's super bad. There's Judd Apatow, Apatow kept talking about how, cause Clark Duke is, is like a background, not a background actor. He's kind of an, he's got lines in it, but like, he's like, this kid's going to be everywhere. He says, it's like, cause he tried to like fit himself into like all these scenes in the background, say all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, he's going to be doing a lot of stuff now. And like, that was right then. And then this and kick-ass kind of came out and where he was kind of starting to do his own thing. What was that? And then he did the office. I know he, he did something with the office. I, oh, yeah, I never, I mean, I've watched The Office, but not that much. Yeah. Another movie we may have to throw on here is Arkansas, especially if we can get Clark Duke on here. I don't know that movie. It is, oh, Arkansas. I got to watch this and do interviews with Clark Duke uh, over the phone because it was around the time of the pandemic, I think, and it hit like, mm. and it's this like sort of Southern noir ish movie where it's him and, it's one of the Hemsworth. I forget which Hemsworth it is, and John Malkovich is in it. Oh, I, I know the movie. I, I mean, yeah. I I know of the movie. I've never seen it, but I know of the movie. Yeah, he directed it. I don't remember if he wrote it, but I know he directed it. And it was fun talking to him. And he mentioned how he would lose himself in takes with Malkovich because Malkovich would just be acting, and like the two of the, he'd be like acting with him. But he's also the director, so he has to know when to say cut and everything. And he's like, yeah, I I, lo- I lost myself in it a couple times, but. I, I would love to get him on here and, and talk about that movie because it is, that is definitely something that I think was unjustly buried and it was a lot of, a lot yeah. of fun. But, but yeah, but back to Hot Tub Time Machine. Yeah, we'll also talk about the cancel Hot Tub Time Machine, but you also, you know, this is, I mean, oh, go ahead. So you, you got, you got a point. Movies, I, I mentioned one joke that holds up retroactively in, in Hot Tub Time Machine. And that's just the whole fact that you have Sebastian Stan playing Blaine, like, the all-American anti-Russian guy, and then he goes and plays the Winter Soldier in Captain America. But then Hop Tub Time Machine 2 has a joke that kind of ages in the reverse, where it's like, oh, what might have been? Because remember when everybody thought Jessica Williams was going to be, like, the head of the Daily Show? And then... I know they, she... I remember, I remember... I only remember her leaving, I actually, to be honest with you. She was one of the big candidates that everyone kept talking about when Jon Stewart was leaving. Like, they thought she was going to be the one to host the show before Trevor Noah was announced. And Hot Tub Time Machine 2 seemed to buy into that because in the future, she's the host of The Daily Show. Oh, I didn't... I will, I, I, I will tell you... This is, again, going off on a little bit of a tangent. I apologize, but I will tell tangent you... Tangent away! Come on! People listen to us for a reason. They like the tangents. I used to I used to manage uh, not manage I used to be the um, the facility manager for a, a marketing research firm in, in New York, and every so often we would get people from different places, but a lot of Comedy Central shows renting out the space to film stuff. We had like an episode of the Amy Schumer show shoot at the at the facility and so on and so forth, and it, it I don't know if it was known at the time, but it ended up being that Jessica Williams' very last piece on the Daily Show was filmed in our office. Oh wow! Yeah, it was like it was like they announced it, and then we and then I just happened to see it, and I was like, oh, that's the yeah, that's my office. That's the one they filmed there. Uh, so yeah, I'm sorry. That was just that, that's it. That's all I had to say. Also, another quick detour for Hopped Out Time Machine Two. I love Christian Slater's bit part in this. I love him as the host of Choosy Doozy because I feel like Christian Slater is 
I feel like he's he's another one of those people where they're just having so much fun right now with whatever they do. Like he's on Archer in a recurring role and he's so wonderful in that. But also just him as like this, I don't want to say smarmy, but like this like outgoing game show host where all of this horrible shit is going on. And he's just at the middle of it all. Yeah, like, I just love all the stuff that he gets to do nowadays. Yeah, it's just, it's like, you can feel it. He's just like, hey, Christian, you want to do this? No, but I'm going to pick this and I can get to do it. You know, he gets to do whatever he wants. Yeah, he just gets to throw off, like, he, he gets to throw off the shackles and just do whatever. And it's like, you just, it's very freeing and it's very nice to see. Again, like, like Billy Zapka. Look, I, I remember. Oh, to Billy Zapka. I remember seeing him pop up in this. And, and we should say it's, it's both, because it's a scene, both him and Angie Everhart, you know, which, you know, so it's not just, it's not just all about him, but I remember seeing it and just being like, man, he, he is killing this, this, this few scene but like absolutely necessary little role of this whole story and he's absolutely killing it and i'm just so glad that so i remember talking to him i talked to him for the first season of cobra guy or maybe actually it was in between it was after the first season before the second season you know and just like you know because again he's somebody who went you know just much much like uh Ki-Kwan doing you know more production side stuff after a while instead of doing performance stuff. So it's great seeing him come back and being able to command like these great roles now. Yeah. But like, I feel like even if that's all we got from him was Hot Sub Time Machine, I'd be happy. I was happy. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's the, uh, like Steve said, it's, it, it's not a laugh of acknowledgement. It's tipping its hat to the nostalgia, but it's not just playing to it. Like he could have very, there could have very easily been a scene where he just yells, sweep the leg for no reason at the TV. And it's like, ah, karate kid. But it's like, no, the yeah, fact yeah. that the nostalgia comes from the fact that you're watching Billy Zapka play a role. Other than that, the dude's allowed to do whatever he wants and it pays off. That yeah, is yeah. trust. That is trusting your cast. That is trusting your own instincts. And just, again, you said it best that it does the 80s right. It takes the basic, you know, ski lodge slobs against snobs story and then it turns it on its head into this thing that's so endearing in terms of the friendship, but also very unique in terms of how it portrays time travel. Because I really like the fact, I mean, I get into this stuff because I'll, I, <laughs> I've done write-ups for, for Cinema Blend and I did one for both Hot Tub Time Machines. And I love breaking down the nuts and bolts of it. And it's very, I think it's very novel where it's like, okay, you travel, it's like a quantum leap sort of thing where it's like, you go between, you go into your own body. It's yeah, not, yeah. You do, you're you not messing around with the time continuum by having two versions of yourself in one place. I mean, Back to the Future does it brilliantly. I don't mind that. But I thought it was really cool that they have to go back to their previous bodies. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, oh, I'll make two comments about that. One being more serious than it should be, because again, you know, there's a, people now finally getting onto the point about like you know if you're going to travel through time it doesn't make a difference because you're not traveling through space which means that you'll just end up floating in space if you were actually really traveling yeah. time so like it's something like that's where you know uh uh chris marcus lachete which is was the basis for 12 monkeys that was the whole point it was just like basically like making his memory go back into a version of himself not necessarily actually time traveling um, so like, it's great to see other things out there that kind of do similar things, but in the same breath, going on another tangent again, is that what I can't believe we didn't get to talk to Steve about, and again, there was so much to talk about, but like the whole running gag of 
Crispin Glover's arm. Yeah. It's just so amazing. And like, that's where you get to like ham that part of it up where you're like, where you're going to make this joke. And it's not a joke about the eighties. It's just a joke about the arm, but like, that's where you get to, that's where you get to do that thing that you couldn't do about the eighties and just pull it back and put it somewhere else in the film and make it work so well. And again, casting Crispin Glover is just that it was perfect because again, that's okay. Acknowledgement. It's like another 80 superstar, but he's not just playing a dorky guy and just doing this. Like he gets yes. the most manic with it. And it's so <laughs> wonderful. And like, even to a certain extent, having John Cusack in there, I mean, I'm sure some people have programmed this with better off dead. You know what? We're gonna. We're, this is now opening up too many doors for too many tangents oh, yeah. to get into. So oh, we're doing better off dead. <laughs> I'm gonna say, with that, everybody, go and make sure you cross. Go watch the wheel as it's coming out now, being available for you to watch. Go cross off hot tub time machine at hot tub time machine two if you're overdue rentals list if you haven't already. And write to your congressman for hot tub time machine three. <laughs> well, hot tub time machine four because there was no three. Yes. Oh, I still. I, I love that guy. I love. <laughs> it. Yes, hot tub time machine four. What happened to Hot Tub Time Machine 3? Mike, if people need to find us, where could they find us? Ah, well, when you're not busy chugging some Chernobyl or trying to figure out how to create Tetra Trinity, oh, I, I, I will remember that element name at some point. I meant to write it down, even though I wrote about the damn movies. But anyway, the Chernobyl reference still stands. Yes. But when you are not busy looking for relationship advice or how to build your own hot tub time machine on the internet, because face it, someone has looked it up and Google will probably populate it on your search results. Lugal will, Lugal will. Lugal, oh, Lugal, oh, ugh. man. We got, I gotta be careful with this, too many rabbit holes. But anyway, if you wanna Lugal our uh, fine show, uh, you can find us on TikTok and, TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rental Show on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you want to email, email us, love letters, uh, recommendations, um, if you release a lobe and you think that we've somehow infringed upon your, your copyrights, uh, you know, we apologize, but you can send all those serious inquiries and not so serious inquiries to overdurentals at gmail.com. While you're on the internet and while I'm taking a breath, you should definitely go back and listen to past episodes uh, because not only do we want to know what you want out of this show, but we're trying to cook up some extra stuff along the way involving current events and a whole bunch of other fun stuff, especially because when we get guests that get to spend an extended time, extended amount of time with us, We'd like to put together some side stuff that mm, maybe patrons could could frequent. Uh, more, more to come on that. But in the here and now, back in the present day, you can find us wherever you, wherever you ethically source your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Audible, wherever you find wonderful recorded content that helps your commute just ease by a little easier, we'll be there. And while you are searching us out there, while you are listening to us, we want you to rate, review, and subscribe to our show because, again, we want to know what works. We want to keep crushing it at the overdue rentals counter because if Blockbuster can come back from the dead, then we certainly need to step up our game and make sure that we can compete with the big dogs. Uh, but friends, family, and listeners, I think that draws us to the end of our show, which means it is time to say... Blah-bye.